How do we describe our guest of this evening? I guess it's generally accepted that Harry Belafonte certainly is one of the most exciting artists in the field of entertainment today, but he's far more than that. Some might describe Belafonte when he sings the spiritual as the young brother of Mahalia Jackson, when he sings the blues as the favorite nephew of Big Bill Brunzi, when he sings work songs as a very close cousin to Lead Belly. We believe that Belafonte is all these things. We're aware of him, of course, as a dynamic figure in the world of entertainment, whether it be the nightclub stage, whether it be in the film, or whether it be in theater. But Harry Belafonte, seated here, I believe, is far more than that. He's a student of a heritage, a folk heritage. And we have a program planned this evening that'll just flow as it comes, and the words and the thoughts will be primarily Harry's himself. Harry, how about uh, beginnings? Where did you get the idea for folk music itself, you as a interpreter of folk songs? I think, Studs, that it would be very, very difficult for me to intellectualize really about uh, my beginnings or my early associations with folk music. I think that uh, my associations were far more emotional in the beginning than, than intellectual. I can't say that I can really pick the time when I started I can only say that I, I'm intellectually conscious of the time when uh, it first became evident to me that I had a responsibility and uh, as an artist, but my responsibility uh, in relationship to my people and in relationship to the culture of my people far surpassing anything else. And it was with this uh, it was with the recognition of this responsibility that I gave my artistic life a direction rather than my artistic life directing my personal life. Uh, I remember as a child, uh, in my early development, a great denial in my background of, uh, of an honest knowledge of, the, of my heritage and of the cultural contributions my people had made. I'd always felt through discrimination and through all kinds of social denials uh, that a great that a great force was being denied me and I can't pick exactly when uh, this consciousness came in except that I found that through my early years as a teenager well, perhaps then Harriet might come from a certain place in the country let's say the south for example I mean, your own, uh, if we choose an emotional time rather than a time chronologically, not a calendar time, but a time as far as you're concerned, a time and a place, it might well be at church, might it not? Might so very, very well be at church. As a matter of fact, uh, I can remember very vividly the streets of Harlem and uh, the, the things that I can remember, to remember experiencing in the streets of Harlem. And uh, a lot of these things rubbed off on me, and I found it necessary to pursue uh, to pursue the the sources from which many of the folk things that I heard on the streets of Harlem and saw in the streets of Harlem it became necessary for me to pursue to find out from whence they came so that in this pursuit uh, I wound up in the south I wound up uh, looking at Negro laborers on the railroad and wound up looking at Negro laborers. Was this laborers. in recent years, Harry? Oh, yes. I would say that uh, these things have unfolded within the past six years. Uh, uh, Negro laborers in the, in the sharecropping fields of the South. And the thing that gave me a great feeling of strength and joy was the fact that 
for people who are as suppressed as the Negro people are, and uh, certainly not in this historical period suppressed as they were in the slave era, but nevertheless suppressed, that with all the things that my people have to go through, the fact that they have not gone berserk in the streets and uh, that there haven't been many outbreaks of violence and whatnot is really a great tribute to my people. And not because uh, there's any cowardice, but because there's a great strength and a great belief and a great hope and the optimism that uh, we shall come out of all of this, you know, as a free people and a happy people. And I think that it expresses itself mainly in the Negro churches of the South. And uh, I recently had the pleasure of recording with the Norman Luboff Choir in California. We took many, many hours uh, trying to recreate, trying to recreate the things that I had seen and felt coming in from the South. Here a group of Negro people congregated in a southern environment, in a southern church. And on Sunday, they have an opportunity to displace and to give uh, direction to their great energies after feeling the suppression. And so it begins, Harry. This is the story of the flood, your interpretation of a dramatic sermon, as might come from a southern church. As That's you right. saw it, as you remembered it. That's right. And your uh, feeling about the church then is that here is the source of so much that is rich in our American music today. Oh, I think that uh, this can never ever be denied. I think that uh, a great portion of the of the culture, the Negro culture in America, and which is the most potent culture in America, has come from the churches. I think that uh, in very far, uh, at least cultural things, musical things that would be considered not part of the church are very much a part of the church. Isn't this true because the church itself is more than just a religious gathering place for the Negro people, it's also a social center it's too, It's a social it? center. It is the area in which the people meet to exchange and to communicate with one another on all levels, uh, whether in the happy social sense or in the highly spiritual sense, uh, whether it be a meeting to discuss and to overcome the problems of the community or anything. I think that uh, there are many people who will not know, or if they do, well, good for them, but uh, most of the, the, the leaders of the Negro people come right out of the churches, come right out of the community. I think that uh, one of the most potent leaders that we have in this area is a woman by the name of Mahalia Jackson. And I think that uh, if we view what she is and what she has done in her contributions to American music, we will find all forms of what is currently popular on the American scene in music uh, coming from this area. Uh, I think that this is best uh, displayed by not only Mahalia's great strength and dignity as an artist, but certainly the things that she has put on the market in recordings for the people to, to participate in and to listen to. I think a good example of this is uh, her interpretation of when the saints go marching in, which comes out of the church and which is in, certainly within keeping of the things that are popular in American music today. Well, it's interesting you mentioning uh, Mahalia's interpretation of when the saints go marching in, because I know a lot of people think of this as a jazz number. You know, that they think of it as a, a New Orleans band playing it. Uh, well, Louis Armstrong played a lot of good bands have played when the saints as a marching song and a jazz song, but uh, truly it's a spiritual to begin with. First of all, it is a spiritual to begin with, and uh, it reflects uh, 
uh, a period in American history when actually to go meet the saints was a far more desirable thing than to stay in the environment in which you were in and never being able to meet any saints at all, but just a lot of pressure all the time. You think this may go back to the slave days, this one? Or this, this, come, this, this may is come actually post-Civil War. It's post-Civil War. But, it's uh, after it the Emancipation. Its, yes, it had its roots in the slave days. I mean, when life on Earth was so rough that perhaps then the talk was maybe life on Heaven would be better. That's right. Is the idea. That's, that's the essence of spirituals. And this, then, is a, a jubilee song, perhaps. It's a jubilee yeah. song in Mahalia's interpretation, which applies to our historical period, which is the necessity for optimism. But uh, when the saints first came out, it was a dirge, actually, used uh, to, in, in a burial setting to go and to bury someone whom you loved and was very sad. And then the interpretation returning from the funeral was one of joy because one of the people had gone to meet their maker and to live in a happier land. And also, too, perhaps in a way, we have buried our dead. These then are kicks for the living on the way back. That's know, right. That's right. Mahalia Saints is what you'd like next on the line. That's right. Woo! <laughs> that, that was the reaction of uh, Harry oh. Balabani to Mahalia's saints. <laughs> mm. She is truly a really magnificent, magnificent woman and a great artist. Because, Harry, we're delighted to, to, to hear you say that because Mahalia has been on this station a number of times. The FMT listeners are very proud that Mahalia is now living with us here in Chicago. Yes, I, uh, I had dinner with Mahalia. Uh, Thanksgiving Day, as a matter of fact, and uh, we had quite a time, didn't we? <laughs> Indeed. This is, uh, I think uh, even though this is uh, sort of a personal story, yet it isn't. I think when two fine artists get together and there's a great deal of enjoyment, there's a give and take in terms of what they have to say, in terms of what they have to sing, it's always a, a joyful meeting and always something that enriches those who are standing by and gathering in all this warmth. Now, as she sang uh, Saints, Definitely, this has sort of jazz beat, wouldn't you describe oh, it as yes, that? Oh, yes, very, very much so. And here, then, we see how, how a spiritual could well uh, have within it the seeds of what is today jazz. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, there would be no jazz if there had been no church and no Negro people in the church. You know? True. And uh, this, by the way, uh, Harry, is going to be part of you feel free to just talk, uh, to say whatever hits you, if, if a song reminds you of something or if a particular thought does, you keep on saying, because this, I know, is your idea for this evening, to just speak of the contributions of the Negroes to American music, and of course that will include uh, jazz, naturally, and the spiritual, and the blues. And well, I tell you, Studs, when I think of Mahalia Jackson, who is a Negro leader and a woman, uh, I right away reflect on uh, that it is significant to me that uh, all of America, Negro and white, should have embraced a man as a legendary folk hero, as one of the great, great heroes in American history. A man who certainly hasn't been recorded in history as Abraham Lincoln has been recorded or Frederick Douglass, but a man who in many ways could mean a lot more to people than Abraham Lincoln or maybe Frederick Douglass even. A man who was a direct result of the working life of America, a man who was a direct product of the pioneering life of America, and certainly one of the big industries in America, which is the railroad, that of all the pioneer figures and of all the legendary folk figures, that a Negro character in folk history should have been identified with and given such uh, a great place in history as a man by the name of John Henry. John Henry. From up in the hills of West Virginia in the building of the Big Bend Tunnel of the CNO Railroad. 
I suppose uh, the story of John Henry that is so magnificent, aside from his own strength, some say there may have been a John Henry, you know, uh, some, or perhaps not by that name, but certainly there have been prototypes of John Henry. Well, there was an extensive study done on John Henry, man or myth, by the University of North Carolina, which has the Carolina Press. And uh, uh, many years of research and study has been done, and I think that... Uh, we can almost say factually that uh, a man did live by the name of John Henry. And although the feats in the song uh, are, are, are blown up into a kind of a fantasy, uh, the man really did exist. And the reason for blowing him up into this kind of a fantasy is like in all folk music. When people find a character whom they feel should be immortalized because of what he represents as a working man to other working men. Uh, no one can ever take away this power from the people to do exactly that. And uh, I felt compelled to record and to put on wax uh, my song of John Henry. Although since this recording, I have uh, found other ways of interpreting it that I have not yet recorded, but this I think will suffice in explaining and expressing what my feelings are. This is your feeling about John Henry. John Henry. Somehow, Harry's, you get the feeling, you get the feeling maybe John Henry didn't lose after all. I think it was Dyer Bennett who spoke of what he felt the greatness of John Henry. See if you agree with him, Harry, or if you disagree. He says, it's more than just the giant himself, but we knew is he couldn't win the fight. He couldn't beat the machine, yet what a, but, but the greatness of the fight, it wasn't just a, a piddling little fight. But it was the great tragedy of a man knowing he was going to lose to the machine, yet putting up the fight to the very end against insuperable odds. A tremendous thing. Well, I tell you, you see, actually, uh, I'm not in disagreement with Daya Bender at all, but I'd just like to, you know, qualify on sure. that just a bit. Uh, rather than it being a real test of John Henry being against the machine, I think John Henry's feeling was the responsibility of the dignity of the men that were involved. The building of the Big Bend Tunnel of the CNO Railroad was a brutal thing, and uh, in which many men had died, in which many men were, as a matter of fact, there's one little chapter out of a book that I read called Folk Songs USA, which said that the, the heat and the dust were so powerful from the blasts inside this mountain and trying to build this tunnel that men and mules dropped dead like flies and no one could take time out to bury him, so they all shoved in a big pit together. And uh, uh, I remember once also reading a dramatization that was once presented to me, and I certainly have every intentions of doing it one way or another. Uh, there was a scene when the men understood that they were having such difficulty building this tunnel that they were going to bring in a steam drill. And they had a meeting, and the foreman was going to tell the group that many of the men would be laid off because they were bringing in the steam drill to finish the job. There was a great silence among the crowd, and John Henry got up and spoke, and he said, I'd never want to be known as anybody opposed to progress. He says, but this is no, ma this is no longer a matter of progress or not progress. My brothers, my friends, my cousins have died trying to build this tunnel. And it just kind of seems to me that nobody has the right to take away our responsibility to finish what these people have died for. 
our dignity is involved in it, our integrity and everything that we believe as working men are involved. So that I ain't really opposed to the machine, I just feel that the machine can't take the place of the soul and the sweat for the many men who died to help build this tunnel. And uh, we gotta finish it, and there just ain't no two ways about it. Well, Harry, we'd like to uh, certainly see you play that role someday. <laughs> I tell you, I'd certainly like to play it. <laughs> yeah, I think what Dyer Bennett had in mind for was more of a symbolic interpretation of man and machine was the idea. Yours, of course, is more of a specific one. Yes. Involving the situation itself, as mm -hmm. uh, as probably did take place one way or another. Of course, as some will say, John Henry might have been a longshoreman. We don't know. I mean, I guess John could have been all these things. No, I tell you, yeah. I'd be willing to sit down and yeah. debate until yeah. until until the fires of hell turned to ice about who John Henry was and what he did. There are just certain things about yeah. him that I hate to see ever taken away. Yeah. You know. As a matter of fact, there are many versions of John Henry, even Richard Dye Bennett. I once saw a version that says that John Henry was an English seaman. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, had come to America, you see, and uh, had kind of led the way. But uh, I guess John Henry really is every people's hero. That's, that's the what point, it is, really. you see, and that's what it is. I uh, think that uh, following this same format in terms of the things that American people and American history has latched on to, I think that uh, it is also somewhat significant that certainly one of the greatest, if not the greatest writer ever produced in America, a man by the name of Samuel Clemens. No debate here. Who, <laughs> who, who had taken on as his pen name, the name of Mark Twain, uh, should have gotten his name from the source that he did, which was the portion of his life which he spent working on the Mississippi River. And uh, in research and in some of the things that I've found in the Library of Congress and through some letters and documents that I've seen, uh, led me to, uh, to develop and to record an interpretation which reflects where Samuel Clemens got his name and what he felt. And uh, as a matter of fact, it's from the album that I turned out called Mark Twain and Other Folk Favorites. Suppose you tell us the story, I mean, how, how the name did come about. I mean, well, uh, I tell you, on the record itself, there's a description. Oh, there is it on the that's record right, proper. That's right, that's right. It's part of the Victor album. Part this of is, the Victor we album. We might as well get a plug-in, too. I know this is a, a cultural contribution. Let's get a plug-in, too. Well, I tell you, I don't even <laughs> really want to <laughs> I just enjoy doing it. This is uh, your Mark Twain that's right. interpretation. Well, Harry, this then, you might say, gives us a graphic picture of the riverboat days. I would say so. There, there are many interpretations. For instance, uh, as I was listening to this, I had to reflect on uh, the fact that many things that happen in music or many things that happen in the recording of art or, or recording of history in art uh, sometimes takes on a highly personalized interpretation which might be an emotional uh, giving of what someone chooses to identify with in a particular historical period rather than what is actually true of the historical period. Uh, I think that, however, art being what it is, you can never interpret it as uh, factual or non-factual in certain aspects, you see. If this were going to be given as an academic mm -hmm. uh, truth, then there'd be great licenses for discussion and probably many fallacies in the interpretation. But when the artist chooses to 
project something that he emotionally feels and emotionally identifies with as an enlargement okay. on what the truth is. Though you is don't live, though you didn't live in that time, you live now at the same time. This is your picture. This is your feeling. This is my picture, my feeling, and my interpretation, which anyone can accept or not accept. But uh, in many areas, the areas where I've found a great lacking in, in, in America, in, in, in a projecting of the things that I consider great strengths and great forces in America. Like, for instance, uh, will you take John Henry? I think that John Henry should certainly be a part of the kind of history that is on the lips and the tongues of every child in be, America. He can be in the textbooks as well in as the in the folk books, song. You know, and uh, I think that uh, there should be a greater and a broader understanding of uh, the Negro contribution to American culture. I mean, in the everyday popular basis rather than in the highly specialized sense. Uh, you take a man like Leadbelly, for instance, who spent so many of his years on the chain gang in the South. Here's a man who finally was able to come north and certainly exposed to many people and into many cultural organizations, you know, many of the universities. Still, and still what the audience Leadbelly reached, unfortunately, I think was limited very in limited. terms of the general population. Of very limited, but those of us who were fortunate enough to hear him heard certain areas of American music and certain things that the American public would never have heard unless there was another Leadbelly, you see. So therefore, in, in, in really digging and in really searching, you sometimes find a little area where there's a whole new development and a whole new opening into the things that are so greatly inherent in the American history and American culture. You mean with Leadbelly, when he came up north, came all these hundreds of songs, perhaps thousands, that he had a remarkable memory, I understand. Oh, songs tremendous. he remembered, work songs, chain gang songs, blues. Things that he remembered hours. as a child that his mother had sung, just all kinds of things. I think that... Uh, just to talk about, just to tie in with what I was saying before about uh, certain licenses and liberties that the artist can take and certainly should take because this is what creates, this is what creation is, this is what stimulation is artistically. You take Leadbelly's Sylvie, for instance, which was called a children's party song or party games. He sung it as a very light, uh, airy song, which, ha which his interpretation projected the fact that it was a children's game song. This is the way Leadbelly felt about it. That's right. It may have been a work song, but he did it as a children's play party That's song. Right. That's how he felt. Uh, that wasn't Leadbelly. That was his, his way of saying it. That was his way of saying it. Now, he may have felt a certain way at that time, too, possibly. Well, I tell you, Leadbelly felt many things. He, met, he You know, after being released out of prison and being able to come north, there are many things that Leadbelly was very bitter about. But because he felt that his freedom might be jeopardized in speaking how he really felt, he reinterpreted many, many things that he did so as not to, in his own way, feel that he was jeopardizing this freedom which he had so very late in his life. You mean Harry was sort of double-talk in a way? And a lot of things that Leadbelly did, he did double-talk. As a matter of fact, a lot of times when people say that uh, uh, Leadbelly wasn't audible, and you can't quite hear what he's saying. There are many times when Leadbelly was singing that he was beginning to project a great bitterness and a great uh, a feeling of pain. And because he was in another environment, came to this passage in a given song and would double talk through it and change the lyric a little bit so that he wouldn't abuse this this newly found uh, freedom. In a way, couldn't this parallel perhaps what might have been considered double talk back in the Underground Railway days when a spiritual was sung, or the overseer just thought it was a spiritual, whereas 
The other slaves knew this were, these were directions. Well, I think a great example of that is a, certainly a, 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 a religious song that's sung in many of the schools today. Go down Moses' widow in Egypt land Till old Pharaoh set my people free Well, uh, a lot of people just think of this as a casual part of American spiritual life, but really the roots of it was in the fact that uh, 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 Harriet Tubman, who was one of the great uh, emancipators and worked with the Underground Railroad, this song was written as a code about her, you see, saying uh, 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 when, well, like for instance, when the Negroes were in the South, you know, down in Egypt land, you know, uh, tell old Pharaoh, in other words, Pharaoh, tell, the overseer, the overseer, the, the owners, tell him to set my people free because uh, Harriet Tubman's on her way down to bring up a new batch of slaves to the north. And so, in a sense, Lead Belly was, may have been covering up uh, mm -hmm. we thought was his lack of proper enunciation, was That's really right. just covering up. This, however, doesn't uh, eliminate the fact that there are many things that he did kind of mumble through that weren't being reinterpreted, but rather the very ethnic sense of what he was doing. Uh, in this Sylvie, for instance, because of what I had known about Lead Belly's life, I took the same song and applied it to the environment in which Lead Belly spent most of his life. And uh, I did it recently in a concert uh, with a show called Three for Tonight, which met with great success. I hear that was a very fine, those, perhaps a lot of Chicagoans did see it, but I hear it was an excellent uh, evening of the theater. Uh, we did some of it on television, as a matter of fact. but. Uh, in reinterpreting this same song, Sylvie, I was led to refer to it. As a matter of fact, uh, when we opened in this section of the show, I said, uh, uh, it took all kinds of people to help build this great land of America. It even took men in the prisons, in the prisons up in the north and from the chain gang down in the south. And you could work these men from sunup until sundown and they could never quit on you. But many times in the late evening, when they were back in their cells and had time to think, they thought mostly about their women folk. Same song, Harry, yet two different interpretations. That's right. Uh, I tell you, uh, I kind of find that many people who are very close to folk music uh, are somewhat projected all the time to feeling that uh, there should be no altering and there should be no changing in what the they purists. consider pure folk music. Yet it is very significant that all the music that is America's have been handed down from one tradition to another, from one historical period to another. Uh, many of the things that come from Europe have been changed. And later on in the program, we, we, you know, I'll try to show some of these things. Uh, it is certainly the right and certainly the responsibility of the artist to, to assume and to make these changes, if he so feels, as long as what he's projecting is within itself a truth and uh, a kind of a, an interpretation which, led, which leads, rather, to a, to a stronger feeling. For instance, there are many things that are happening now in our historical period which I can find things in the past 
history to reflect, you know, the same kind of feelings. Yet in our period, they would have to be reinterpreted because of the different times in which we live so that the public can understand it. Harry, if I may, just a moment, hop on your wagon on this matter of defending a stylist. I mean, we know, and uh, there are a good many of FMT listeners, of course, who enjoy folk music very much, and a number of them uh, think that if a song is changed, it's not true. So long as the artist feels that's the important thing. We know, for example, Johnny, Johnny Randolph, I was about to say, well, there was a tune. Lord Randall mm -hmm. became, in West Virginia, Johnny Randolph, or Johnny Randall. That's the whole point of it. Uh, the West Virginian guy sang it differently than the Elizabethan minstrel did That's right. at a different time. So he's not dishonest. He, he would have been dishonest had he imitated and parroted exactly that way. But it has to be adjusted and adapted to the time of a guy, so long as he feels honest in his interpretation. Well, I'll tell you, uh, and by that same token, I also have a great dislike and a great vehemence towards anyone who would take this kind of music and butcher it and uh, give it all the dishonest things that they give it because of the commercial returns and the commercial values in it. There once was a green sleeve so butchered as I remember. Yes, so I will butchered. not name the label. All <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm in agreement with you. But uh, I think that uh, the freedom of the artist to interpret these things are very important. How many of the folk things that took place in Europe were taken out of their small, little, simple, folk environment as single string melodic things and given the great symphonic treatment by Beethoven or Brahms, you know, these things would develop into great themes and given a real place in history because of uh, the interpretation given by Beethoven or by Brahms or any one of the great classical composers. But by the same token, I don't consider myself by any means a Beethoven or a Brahms, but uh, I do feel an artistic responsibility and I do feel the a certain right, as long as what I bring to it is what I feel is honestly a truth and a passionate feeling for the source and for the things that it has to say. I think a good example of uh, another such liberty is uh, a song that I also heard for the first time with Lead Belly called Gotta Jump Down, Turn Around and Pick a Bale of Cotton, which in his interpretation he says you gotta jump down, spin around and pick a bale of cotton, yet in other interpretations that I've heard from chain gang uh, uh, prisoners who sing it, sing uh, another thing which says, I won't jump down, spin around and pick a bale of cotton, won't jump down, turn around and pick a bale a day, which was a real work song and which really reflected the, the feeling of, uh, of uh, uh, their reaction, you know, to what they did not want to, to do. To being speeded or being made to labor right. involuntarily. That's right. And, uh, I think if we listen to the Lead Belly uh, interpretation first, then I will show you the liberty that I took uh -huh. with it. Now, he sings it as a work song. That's right. This, then, was Lead and his friend's interpretation of uh, Pick a Bale of Cotton. Yes, and uh, his interpretation is correctly so, you know, the right interpretation. Yet, uh, because of many aspects in the music, a lot of these things were used uh, for hoedown music uh, with Negro square dances in the South. And uh, they use it at uh, the gatherings of the festivities where they'd have a caller and everybody would dance accordingly. Well, I took the same material that I heard Lead Belly sing and gave it the interpretation as a children's game song, you see. So whereas he had Sylvie as a children's game song and I made it a work song, work song or a prison blues, uh, he has this, which is a work song, and I took and gave it as a children's game song, which is a direct switch to what had taken place before, and we call ours Jump Down, Spin Around. 
Joy, you might say, is the word there, Harry. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I can't think of anything that I've ever recorded or worked on that gave me as much pleasure as this particular song did. And uh, it is the only record that I've ever recorded where I had to have 37 takes in order to get the right one. 37 times for this one. 37 times. Because you want to get the feeling, what the, well, the tempo, of course, was so tricky, too. Oh, the tempo and the play on lyrics, and of course, uh, the chorus just had a great time to a point where I had to leave the chorus alone and later dub in the remainder of the song. What came out, though, was the, the jumping for joy, really. That's it. It did have a flavor of a children's song. Oh, yeah. Only. Oh, yeah. Uh, by the same token uh, that we referred to the liberties that you take with a song from changing, you know, from taking it from one environment and putting it in another and giving, giving it another interpretation, there are certain songs that I've found, for instance, which uh, were songs that have been folk songs for women. And many of them are very, very beautiful ballads and things that I've always wanted to sing, but because they were songs for women, uh, I couldn't sing it. Uh, By folk songs, women, you mean it was a woman, uh, it was a plaint, her plaint of That's right. Lost it was an interpretation over, you know, of lost love or, or you know, whatever it might be. Being that pushed she's around loved, generally. Anything. Yeah. And... Uh, there's so much a woman's song that uh, for me to have done it would be to assume that, uh, you know, I could have identified with it in its context. And uh, such a song, for instance, is a song called Every Night When the Sun Goes Down, which uh, was a woman's song, but I felt so strongly about its lyrics and so strongly about its music that uh, I wanted to do it. And this called for a small change in, in, a, lyric. in a lyric line. And uh, we called it uh, Suzanne. Where did this come from, Harry, this song? Uh, I found this song uh, from another folk singer, uh, a woman uh, in New York who no longer sings folk songs but has since retired and is raising a family. And I first heard her sing it. She wasn't very popular as a folk singer, but rather in the folk singing groups that uh -huh. exchange with one another down in Greenwich Village in New York. Uh -huh. And I heard it. and. Uh, had since found it in books, folk song books, and had heard other folk singers doing it. And I've always wanted to sing it, and uh, the only way I could get around to doing it was to write this interpretation. This is the liberty, then you rewrote this, the liberty you took as a man to sing a That's song right. originally. And the only liberty that I took was to add the name Suzanne. All the other things are basically in the song, or all the lyrics in the original song, but I added just the name well, Suzanne. Well, you changed a pronoun here and That's there. Right. Uh, no, I didn't even change no. the pronoun. Just left everything just as it was. Go, and it? just said Suzanne. Suzanne. 